Hi, Ellie Bell. Hi, Blainers. My grandkids are here this morning. Son-in-law and my daughter. We're, we had a fourth birthday for him yesterday, and we had fun, didn't we, buddy? Yeah, we did. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd like to invite you to open it to Acts chapter 4 again. Um, <clears throat> we're going to take up where we left off last week with a little bit of a different spin on understanding what's going on in this text and what transpires. Last week, do you remember, we were looking at the response of, of the apostles to the opposition that arose over the healing of a blind man, or excuse me, a lame man, at the beautiful gate in the third chapter. And we saw how the church responded in prayer when they were released from jail and were warned and commanded not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus and not to teach anymore in this gospel. And they went to their companions and explained to them all that had been said. And last week we looked at the church's response and how beautiful and powerful and courageous the church's response was in the light of that opposition that arose. This morning we're going to start in verse 31 and I want to read verse 31 down to the end of the chapter and ask you to follow along with me. It says in verse 31, and here is God's response to the prayer meeting. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. And then in verse 32, we read, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales, and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. And then here we are introduced now, in the next couple of verses, to a less known man in the New Testament. When we think of the primary and prominent figures in the New Testament, we think of the apostles. We think of John, and we think of Peter, and we think of Paul, and men like that who were so prominent and so used by God. And yet this particular man is not as well known. But I, I just have such a tender spot in my heart for this man. Some time ago, you guys, I was doing an exercise in Providence, and you've heard me speak of Providence recently, and how God provides and protects and cares for. And I sat down in my office one afternoon, and I began to reflect from the beginning of my Christian life 
And I looked back, it spanned, it spanned about 35 years at the time that I did this exercise. And I walked down through, and by the time I was done, I had 25, no, pardon me, 20. There were 20 uh, people on my list, and I wrote on the column next to them how they had marked my life as a Christian, how much they had meant to me. And they were not all prominent people. Some were hardly known at all by anybody. But they had a special quality about them. I suppose if we were to reduce it down to what mattered most was that they had the quality of genuine care. You know, that's as simple as it gets as a Christian. Do we really care? about the people we come in contact with. Oftentimes, I know how it is with you. You're busy, you have a schedule, you have things, errands you're running, things you need to do. But you go into Walmart and you're on your way somewhere else shortly after and you know it, but it's hard to go into Walmart without running into people, isn't it? But when we do, do we recognize that in God's wisdom and his sovereignty, he may have placed that person in your path and do you pause, check your heart. Do I really care about this person I'm talking to? Because when you ask them how they're doing, what's the typical answer that you get? Fine. Whenever I think of that, I think of sandpaper. Um, fine. What grit are you today? <laughs> fine. Just fine. Well, in this past year, with the virus, with the shutdowns, with losses of job, with shut-ins, with quarantines, with kids out of school, our country has really taken a hit. And the news doesn't say too much about it, but societally, in terms of society, we have taken a hit psychologically and emotionally in many ways. And we need people who really care. And the church body, if we're rightly re related to Jesus Christ, no one ever walked the earth who cared more than him. And so I wrote a list of 20 individuals who had marked my life. And I haven't followed through yet. Some of them have already died and gone home to be with the Lord because they were older. Some of them I actually pursued because I saw in them godliness and qualities that I wanted to benefit from, and so I pursued them in hopes that they would take me under their wing. And I'm so grateful for God's providence and how he provided those people in my life. I sat yesterday morning at our men's breakfast thinking how blessed I am to have this little group of men in a, sitting around enjoying Lance's breakfast that he whipped up for us guys. It's always lots of good greasy sausage and, and uh, bacon. You know bacon, there's just nothing like bacon. I told Kathy a while back, if you go to the store and you can't find the fabric softener fragrance that you want, just get bacon flavor. <laughs> it's the best. Anyway, but I sat there thinking, these guys are amazing men. 
They're not show-offs. They're not up front often like I get to be privileged to be. But these are good men. And these men care. They care about one another and they care about others. And I just sensed such a blessing just being there with them. Well, today we're looking at this man. Look there at verse uh, 36. We're first introduced to him. It says, now Joseph, that was his given name, a Levite, so he is from the tribe of Levi, of Cyprian birth, which means he was born on the island of Cyprus, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles. Now, it wasn't just anybody. The apostles nicknamed him Barnabas. I think if he were here among us, he'd be happy with being called Barney. He wasn't a big shot. He wasn't looking for attention. That's not what he was about. And we'll see it as we go. This name Barnabas, is trans which being translated, actually means son of encouragement. And what it is, is a kind of play on words. It's as though encouragement was a being and encouragement gave birth to a son and called him Barnabas, son of encouragement. Now, when we first read that, in fact, you can look at verse 37, he owned a, a tract of land going along with what was said earlier, and he sold it, and he brought money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he was quite generous, and he gave to help the needs of others. He cared. But this word, son of encouragement, is a very important word in the New Testament. By the way, in passing, Barnabas appears 25 times. He's mentioned 25 times in the book of Acts and mentioned five times in the epistles, in the letters. So he doesn't get a lot of attention. But my, what a difference he made as God was at work in him and through him as he cared for others. But this word, and I'm sorry for being technical, but I need you to understand, it's limiting it. The translation you have in front of you is limiting this word. When it says son of encouragement, this is a much greater word than encouragement. It's bigger than that. It's more, it has a wider scope than that. And at times much more precise than just what we would think of as encouragement. The word that we're talking about that's translated encouragement is the word parakaleo in the Greek. Parakaleo, it's a compound word. Para means alongside, or to come alongside. Kaleo, on the, on the other hand, when you look at your Bible and follow this word, what ends up happening is that you see that it depends on the context and the condition of the person that you've come alongside as to how you serve them, how you care for them, what it is they need. Now stay with me, because this is very important, or we'll miss the richness of this man, Barnabas. The word kaleo is translated in your Bible in these ways. The exact same word, depending on the situation. It means to exhort, to 
admonish, to persuade towards a positive course of action. It means to beseech, even beg. It means to entreat, to implore, to assist, to encourage, to strengthen, to console, to comfort, to counsel, to reassure, and to build up. That single word is translated in all those ways in your New Testament. So when the apostles call this man Barney, they're really saying something about him. That God uses him because he truly cares. And so it is a multifaceted name that they gave him, a, a name of tremendous value. And I would say, my brothers and sisters, in, of, of all the gifts, and by the way, it's even spoken of as a gift in Romans chapter 12, the gift of exhortation, it's called. And so in that context, it's exhortation. But it could have been called the gift of encouragement, the gift of challenge, and so on. I would say in the life of any church, the most vital believers in our midst, and I thank God that we have so many of them in our little local church who are like Barney, who are always listening, hearing of some need, some concern, something that's happened to somebody, and coming to their aid. Recently with Rod Schneider going home to be with the Lord. How proud I am of our church body and how we rallied together and came to serve Janice and her family. Thank you. But we need Barneys. They are absolutely vital. And if you've ever been downcast, if you've ever been in a predicament where you're hurting, if you've ever been through a season of trial and difficulty and God sent a Barney to you, you never forget it. It changes you. It marks you. Well, I don't want to belabor that, that etymology of the word any longer, but I want to just say this. Let's look, though there are several, let's just quickly look at three brushstrokes in the portrait of Barnabas, the son of encouragement and see if we can't learn something from it that we can apply to our own selves as we think about life in the family of God and with one another. The first stroke is the stroke of sincerity as he contributed to God's work. And we just now read that. Verse 36, Barnabas, this man named Son of Encouragement, he simply was a landowner. And he sold a tract of land. It doesn't say he liquidated everything he owned, but he sold a tract of land and he brought, it, brought the proceeds to the apostles to distribute for the help of others. And how grateful I am for our church. We have a giving church. And at times a very generous church that steps up and helps when others are in need. And so that's the first thing we see about Barnabas is that he was a man of sincerity, and it was shown in contributing to God's work. And the reason I'm using the word sincerity is because in the context, it's contrasted with Ananias 
and Sapphira in the next chapter who were not sincere givers and who, and who suffered the consequences. Secondly, the second brush stroke in this portrait is the stroke of sympathy as he commends God's new disciple. And this is so vital to see. Turn to chapter 9 in Acts. In chapter 9 of Acts, beginning at verse 23, this is following the apostles uh, or Saul's conversion to Christ when all the church body and the people of God knew was this guy is out to get us. And he is notorious for being a persecutor of the church of God. And the people don't know about the conversion that happened to Saul on the road to Damascus. They don't know it yet. And so we take up in verse 23, it says, um, when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. Why? Because he was preaching that Jesus was the Son of God. Immediately, he was going for it, and he was preaching and making Christ known, and the Jews immediately turned on their former companion, who once was uh, fully, uh, really in charge of the persecution. Now he's been converted and brought to Christ, and now he's preaching, and they hate him. And so it says in verse 24, but their plot became known to Saul, and they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. So he's being, he's being protected and being freed. Now, we're not quite come to the text I want you to see. But, you know, on a lighter note, again, somebody cares. Someday, and I, I anticipate this, don't you? Someday in heaven, when this old world has passed away like a dream, and we're in the eternal state, and now we're meeting all these people, Old Testament saints and believers and New Testament, all the church down through the ages. Think of all the people we're going to enjoy meeting and talking to. But I have this hunch that someday it wouldn't surprise me to be in a conversation and have somebody else involved in the conversation that I just met, and then I begin to tell of that day that day in, in, um, in early March, when we met as a church in Kettle Falls, Washington, on the other side of the earth from Jerusalem and, and Israel, and, and a group of fellow believers got together, and we were reading this passage, and we were just thinking, how innovative is that? And the guy's going to speak up, and he's going to say, oh, you're talking about me. And I'm going to say, what? And he's going to say, I'm the one who came up with the basket idea. I'm the one. I was there. We had to get Saul out of town or he was going to be killed. And I came up with the basket idea, and we put a rope on it. We lowered him down over the wall, and he escaped. Don't you think that's true? Someday you're going to meet that believer. Is that a big deal? Well, I don't know. Is the Apostle Paul a big deal? <laughs> Two-thirds of the New Testament's written by him under the inspiration of the Spirit. So anyway, that's just a side point, no extra charge. But look at verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, 
Okay, now he's coming to the, the epicenter of the Christian faith at this time, Jerusalem. He was trying to associate with the disciples. He was a new believer. And he was wanting to be with fellow Christians, and he's wanting to get in with them. What kind of response does he get? Verse 26, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But, verse 27, but Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas was not only a man of sincerity contributing to God's work, he was a man of sympathy, and he commended to them Saul when nobody else wanted anything to do with him. It reminds me of a, of a mental picture I have in our first church, probably back in 1984 maybe, and it was a Sunday morning, and we were already well into the service, and the, the singing um, had just about ended. And just then, I was leading singing. Kathy was at the piano. Just then, somebody came in late to church. And uh, it wasn't a very big place like this. And this young man came in through the back doors, and I can still picture it. He came in, and he walked over. At the back aisle there, he knelt down and did the best he could at something that looked sort of Catholic because he didn't really know what to do. He was trying to fit in. And he was just in tattered clothes, a tank top, long hair. He was kind of a disheveled mess. But he was in church. He'd just come in. And uh, he came up and was looking for a place, and there was hardly any place to sit, and he found a place about three rows from the front and squeezed in and sat down. So I began to preach the gospel, and as I was preaching the gospel toward the end of the message, I started making rhetorical questions, only he was answering them out loud. And he answered my question, so have you come to the place of putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? I haven't he would say. And then the whole thing became him and me now. And the whole church is watching. It's gone back and forth between him and me. And it became this witnessing opportunity. And finally I said, well, do you want the Lord Jesus Christ in your life? Do you want your sins forgiven? Do you want a new beginning? And he said, I do, I do. And I said, well, you can come forward and just kneel right here. And goodness sakes, I, he did. He came down and he knelt right down here. And the whole church family, like you this morning, are watching this young man and he's all by himself. All alone. And then our resident Barney in the church body, an old man by the name of Woody. He was an ex-state uh, police officer and a mechanic and kind of a jack of many trades. He had been led to Christ about a year before in his mid-70s. And both he and his wife came to Christ. 
And we met them at a dinner. His sister-in-law attended our church, and she did this sort of espionage thing where she set up us having a dinner and then invited the pastor and his wife over. You see what's going on. And so this was a setup for Woody and his wife. And I think it surprised him because I just sat down, I started asking questions and about his law enforcement days and about his mechanicing, where he grew up. And I think by the time we were all done, an hour and a half or so with dinner and conversation, I never once pressed him. And he said, you know what, preacher? Tuji, that's what he called his wife, Tuji and I are coming on Sunday. I've enjoyed this conversation. Well, it wasn't really a conversation. I would ask questions, and then he would share 10 minutes worth of stories, and then I'd ask another one, and he'd tell me more. But people like that. They enjoy telling about themselves. And I showed him respect. He was an older man than I. I was only in my mid-20s. Well, Woody, but as he was leaving the house that night, he said, now I'm coming Sunday, but I want you to know, if you call on me, if you make me stand up, or you point me out to everybody, you'll never see me again. I said, I won't, just come. And so he came. And then he invited us out to his house. Well, long story short, they both gave their hearts to Christ. Jesus wonderfully saved them, and we began having Bible studies, and he had grown for about a year. Well, now here we are a year later, and here's this young, stringy-headed young man on his knees at the platform. And it was awkward just like it would be this morning. Because he was ready to pour out his heart. I mean, out loud. There was no inhibitions whatsoever. I've got to get this Jesus in my life. And when you know it, we had a Barney among us. Woody. And he had a terrible back. If you looked at his back, it looked like an S. And he was a big man. He was nearly as big as um, Mr. Winrick back there. He was a tall man, strong. And he came walking up. Here comes Woody. Got out of the chair from back there. He came making his way up. And even with his messed up back, he came down. And he really couldn't sit. But he could get on one knee. And put his arm around that kid. And I thought, <laughs> Barnabas, you've come back from the dead. And Woody, with just tears, because he's only had known Christ for about a year. And him and that young man had the sweetest time. Marked that young man for all eternity and marked Woody. What did he have? He cared. He just flat out cared about this young man. And they prayed, the young man received Christ. I'll never forget that scene. We never know. I have a little sticker. I set up an office at home, you know, because of COVID and I've been studying at home a lot. But I have a little sticker above my desk and it says, it's never too soon for an act of kindness or encouragement. For you never know when it may be too late.
Look again there at verse 27. Those opening six words. But Barnabas took hold of him. That morning, Woody came forward and took hold of him. Everybody else was kind of just frozen. They didn't really know what to do. When was the last time you took hold of someone that needed you? I mean, that really needed you. When was the last time I did? The church needs to be filled with Barnabases. Well, lastly, the stroke of sight. And that's in chapter 11, and we'll finish up with this. The stroke of sight. When we look, do we see when God is at work? Do we recognize when God is the one who is at work in someone's life? You never know until you pause and care enough to really look. Well, this is an interesting passage. It begins at verse 19 to get the context. It says, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. Now you notice they were scattered. Some of them ended up on the island of Cyprus. Where was Barnabas from? Cyprus. Verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Now watch carefully. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. And so what did they do? They sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God. That's an interesting phrase. How do you witness the grace of God? Can you see the grace of God when it's operating in someone else's life? Yeah, if you have sight, if you're in that mindset and you care, you can see it. So verse 23, then when they arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he, Barnabas, rejoiced and began to what? Encourage them, to, to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. And then we have this little description. Speaking of Barnabas, verse 24, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And then verse 25, when he was done there, he went to look for Saul. Why? I think because he saw the grace of God and those Greeks coming to Christ, and it was more than he could handle. And he said, I need some help with this. And so verse 25 says, he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. 
And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Barnabas cared. And because he truly cared, he had sincerity as he contributed to needs. He had sympathy as he commended Saul to the church in Jerusalem when nobody else would touch him with a 10-foot pole, which made all the difference for Paul, didn't it? And then he had sight to witness or recognize a true work of God's grace going on and said, I need help. I'm going to go get Saul and bring him back. And they spent an entire year pouring themselves out, helping the church grow. You know, um, even the most positive, generally speaking, even the most positive and strong among us, at times, we need encouragement. Let me finish up with this verse. You don't have to turn to it, but I'll tell you where it's at. This is Second Corinthians chapter seven. This is the Apostle Paul writing, the great apostle. He says this, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. I don't think Paul was given to exaggeration or hyperbole. We were being afflicted on every side. Conflicts without and fears within. How's that for expressing the condition of the great Apostle Paul? Conflicts without fear within. And then listen carefully now. The next verse says this, but, aren't you glad for all the buts in the scripture? But God, who comforts, there's that word, Parakaleo. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. Wait a minute. The verse starts with God who comforts the depressed comforted us. But how did he do it? By the coming of Titus. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Another Barnabas, a son of encouragement, came. Well, I got to experience this, and we're going to have a shorter service today if that clock's right back there. Is it right? Yeah. I experienced this Friday afternoon, and just because you may not have all known, there's no sense gossiping about it, but I had a quite a, an automobile wreck that I was in on Friday on my way to Colville. And I was passing a log truck and thought I had plenty of space. 
um, which I did in a sense, but then either the truck speeded up more than I anticipated or the car out in front of him slowed down, but the space for me to get back in, I couldn't get back in. It, it was getting tighter and tighter. And uh, looking back on it now, I might have done a different option, but I tried to get in. And the log truck caught the rear end of, my, uh, of the van and spun me sideways and was dri driving me down the highway and then kicked me off to the side and then smashed me, kind of crammed me into the guardrail. And then he went on by and I spun until I stopped in the middle of the highway. And uh, I'm just telling you the story just so you know it happened and now you know I uh, had a wreck. And um, I'm thankful to be with you. You can't imagine how lovely all your faces are because it could have gone differently. And God's providence, again, was there watching over me and the truck driver. But why am I bringing this up? Because as I stood there shaking and sort of in shock on the side of the road looking at my mangled vehicle, I didn't want to call Kath because I didn't want to frighten her. So I called Pastor Terry. And Terry became, for me, the next three hours, my needed Barney. I needed a friend and help. I wasn't sure what to do, and I wasn't thinking very clearly. And um, so I had wreckage all around and fear within. And God who comforts sent Terry. Not Titus, but Terry. And I'm very grateful, Terry, for you coming. Thank you. So what does parakaleo mean? What does it mean for you and me to ask God, God, make me a son of encouragement. Give me genuine care for others. What will it look like? And this is my best attempt. Parakaleo means this. The Holy Spirit working through us to, to come alongside, to help, to strengthen the weak, to reassure the wavering, to steady the faltering, to console the troubled, to comfort the hurting, and to encourage and challenge the halting. That's what it means to be a son or daughter of encouragement. Don't you want to be one of those? How many of you would like to be one of those? Serious, wouldn't you? That's a good thing, almost every hand. Some didn't raise their hand because they're just stubborn that way. <laughs> they need to be exhorted. That's where it, that comes in, you see. Well, I'm still a little shaky and uh, quivery on the inside from the incident and uh, knees feel a little weak. And, but I'm so glad to be here and to be standing and be alive and the Lord is not done with me yet. And I'm thankful for you and thankful for a church family filled with people given to uh, being sons of encouragement, consolation, 
challenge, comfort, whatever the need may be. Let's, let's thank the Lord together. My Father in heaven, I'm so grateful that I can call you my Father and grateful that collectively we can pray our Father. Thank you for this message from your word today. Thank you that all of us could sit down with pen and paper and write down the names of people who have been drawn alongside us through the years. They've marked our lives for the better. Those are the ones we want to remember, not the critics, not the slanderers, not those who were abusive or hurtful, but help us in, to reflect on those who came alongside like a Barnabas and were there for us. And Lord, our simple prayer is, would you make us a truly caring, a truly caring people? And in being truly caring, grant us grace and wisdom and a sensitive heart to come alongside those in need. Help us to slow down enough to really care. So we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truth, and the brush strokes in the portrait of Barnabas. How we need them, Lord. How we need more of them. Provide them, would you please. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.